Hello and welcome. You are listening to an informed take on current events brought to you by law students and staff of Queen's University Belfast. This is LawPod. Today we are joined by Justice Teresa Doherty, um, former presiding judge at the Special Court of Sierra Leone. And we are delighted to have a conversation um, as part of the law school's day on 16 days of activism that currently um, we have a number of events running around that. So Justice Doherty, welcome. Mm -hmm. Um, I want us to talk about violence against women Mm. and what you feel and recognize to be the biggest challenge to addressing the issue of violence against women and girls. There is no doubt in my mind that violence against women is a universal phenomenon. I remember a young woman in Papua New Guinea saying to me, oh, it's all right for you white women, you never get beaten up. No, it's not like that. So violence against women must, to my mind, go with a mindset. Most violence within the home is against women and children. There are instances of men being beaten up and I've had to deal with them. But in my experience, the majority is against women. And what concerns me often is the feeling on the part of men that they're entitled to do it. That also comes um, to my mind from the concept that they own women. I used to hear men say, for example, oh, well, I paid bride price, I'm entitled to hit her. In fact, they didn't pay the bride price at all. It was paid by their family, but they saw themselves as having bequeathed to them that right. There is also a mindset that I came across in practice and as a judge where it wasn't really my fault, the man said. You know, she did things. Or I remember on one occasion the man saying, oh, no, I didn't really hit her. You know, she says... I banged her face into a mirror. No, 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 no. We moved the mirror and she walked into it. This level of refusing to face responsibility is something I came across continuously. And I'm not a psychologist, so someone else might be able to explain it. But until we overcome those attitudes, I am sadly of the view that it will not completely stop. So in that vein, how can law specifically be used to address some of the pressing issues that you highlight there? In many of the countries that I have worked in and that I know subscribe to, for example, the United Nations concept or standards for prisoners and rehabilitation. So rehabilitation involves education. Reform is not quite the right word, but trying to re-educate and overcome mindsets. So 
I think overcoming those mindsets is important. In fact, it's crucial if we are to change attitudes. Because violence goes with attitude. Mm. It also goes with bad temper and lack of personal control. I've, I've seen men who suddenly realise they've beaten people up, men and women and children. And they've done it in what old Irish called a red fury. The concept of responsibility for crimes against women in war is a growing one. Yes. That, for me, because I worked in the field and um, Sierra Leone was my third civil war, and the crimes against women in that civil war and in Bougainville were exceptionally high. The Secretary General of the United Nations spoke about the egregious sexual violence against women and girls in Sierra Leone during the civil war there. So there is a growing realisation that soldiers don't have a right to rape women because they're the victors. And an even greater realisation that the men who are in charge, the leaders, both political and military, who are in charge of forces used in war, must take control, must take superior responsibility. I don't subscribe to the idea that when soldiers defeat an enemy, move in, for example, as happened in Berlin in the Second World War, that they can just go on the rampage and attack and rape any woman, girl or boy that they see. We had an interesting, very informative military experts speak during some of the trials in Sierra Leone. And it was quite clear then that the level of discipline that's instilled into soldiers, that the concepts of responsibility and that they must obey commands is clearly disciplined into soldiers. So we see more now the concept, starting with Nuremberg, of the responsibility, a superior responsibility of leaders. So far, it has been mainly military leaders. But we're also seeing political. Brashear has been in, is Warren's out for his arrest in South Sudan. Habre is on, under trial. Charles Taylor has been convicted. These are examples of political leaders who also have been found to have responsibility or are alleged to have had responsibility for crimes, crimes that included rape, sexual violence and forced prostitution. I think that's a very um, important point to stress that for our listeners to think beyond military leadership, but also political leadership and accountability for sexual and gender-based violence that are commi- committed under their watch. Mm-hmm. But let's talk about non 
um, state actors. How do we deal with them? So with the Special Court of Sierra Leone, we saw a militia group also involved in um, committing atrocities. Could you speak a little bit about that? They, there were three military groups involved in the crime tribunals in Sierra Leone. Two were rebel groups and one called the Civil Defence Force was made up of traditional hunting groups or warrior groups within different tribal groups. And they were also indicted for crimes against humanity and war crimes. Now, that caused quite a political outcry in Sierra Leone. Why was that? Well, they were seen as the goodies. Yes. And they were led by... um, the deputy, a, a minister, a deputy minister of defense, and he was indicted because it was said as a political leader, he was um, dr- responsible for the acts of those under his command. So within the um, other rebel groups, there had been military people. They were low ranking. Sam Bakary, who was a vicious killer within the uh, Revolutionary United Front. Incidentally, his um, apparently his ambitions, according to the information we were given, was to be a hairdresser and a gigolo in Paris. But he never made it. He was instead a leader of a very vicious yeah. military group. They ostensibly said they were complaining, campaigning, against corruption. Sierra Leone's civil war was not one like some other areas in West Africa where you had, or East Africa, where you had two different tribal groups. It wasn't like that. They were coalescence between the different groups. Commanders there, I remember one lot of evidence where apparently a commander said to his rebel soldiers, many of them abducted children. Enjoy yourself, boys. This is your day. Because they had captured women and girls and were handing them around. So that even within those groups, there were clear lines of command. Absolutely. Yes. One witness for the defence in one of the trials insisted in referring to Fodi Sanko as a leader as a four-star general. My goodness. So they saw themselves in that form of disciplined regime. And they were disciplined among themselves because, if, for example, if the women transgressed, the abducted women transgressed in any way, they, they, the punishments were vicious. One of the things that is very striking when reading the transcripts from the trials is the voice of victims. How did you cope with hearing some horrific, horrific testimony? Because I think international practitioners, like all of us, must react when hearing how victims' lives physically, mentally, emotionally are destroyed by the harms that they've suffered. The consequences not only to them, but their families, their communities, as well as their country. So I'm very interested in how 
How it, what was it like to listen to testimony after testimony of horrific violence? It, it was very difficult. At times there were times, and there's always certain ones that stick out in your mind. I wasn't expecting that question, but immediately I can see some of those witnesses. A man who had his both his hands chopped off, but amputated, and suddenly he stood up and he raised his hands above his head and he was in tears and he said, look what they did to me, I did nothing wrong. And as a human being, you, you, you cannot help but feel a great sympathy for a person like that. I remember also a woman who was describing the gang rape of herself and of her daughters in her presence. And she was a woman with great dignity. And towards the end of the cross-examination by the uh, defence counsel, defence counsel said, do you still go around with men? And I was presiding, and one of the rules of the um, Special Court for Sierra Leone, in common with the... Yugoslav and the Rwandan tribunals makes it clear that victims of sexual violence cannot be challenged on their past um, history or their, um, to my mind, future. So I went to press the buttons and say to this lady witness, you don't have to answer. But before I got to the button, she had turned to the defence counsel and looked at him with real pity and said, I never want to see a man again in my life. So the witnesses themselves brought some dignity, a lot of dignity, but also a lot of pain. How do you, did I as a human being cope with it? Well, I was a judge for quite a lot of years, many years before that. And over the years, you have to learn to rise above certain emotions. You don't lose sight of the fact that people have suffered. But your work is to judge the defendants who have a right to a fair trial. And a fair trial means, includes, among other things, an unbiased trial where the emotions of the judge do not enter into the arena. So in that way, I learned to try to rise above and look at credibility and look at the defendants. But personally, I can no longer watch a crime, a, a, a violent film or a violent television. I used to have to go out every day and have a good walk, clear my head, just to, to, just to try and clarify and put things in perspective, not perspective, but to have a calming effect. And I did a lot of knitting. Knitting is a very calming occupation <laughs> for stressful situations. But yes, it was very difficult. There's no getting away from that. And take me back to post-conflict Sierra Leone when you were involved in the domestic 
legal system at the time, in a society that was ravaged by warfare, brutal warfare. I remember growing up and hearing stories from my father about what was going on in Sierra Leone and why it was important, not just for us as West Africans, but for the world to really take notice. Tell us about what was that like when you first went to Sierra Leone, what you saw. The town was wrecked. But I find it really amazing how the Sierra Leoneans were able to rise above certain things. Such as? Seeing children going out to school in the morning with polished shoes and well-ironed shirts and dresses. Sierra Leoneans' personal appearance is very important. Quite a contrast to other places where I've worked where personal appearance, of course, was important, but not to the extent as it was in many West African societies. The other sad thing was there were groups of young men hanging around. At first, when you saw them and you knew they were ex-combatants, yes, they had a fairly cheerful look. The war was over. They weren't being charged. They weren't being, they were free of some of the the military um, masters that they had. In time, I saw that cheerful expression change among those young men who still didn't have jobs. And you could see a more surly face on them. So that was changing. The number of amputees, there were what they called amputee camps, for example, one not far from where I was staying that was funded and looked after and helped by the Canadian aid and the government of Canada. And you saw groups of people there with a hand missing, two hands missing, a leg missing. And those were people that had worked hard, that had been productive, that were suddenly incapacitated through no fault of their own. And they were resentful in many ways that ex-combatants had aid given to reintegrate them into society when the amputees said, we are the victims. They were the perpetrators. Why are we not getting similar help? So there was resentment there. There was people getting back on with their lives. But it was sad to see the buildings destroyed. Not that I hadn't seen it in other places, including here in Belfast, but the fact remains that there was no need to destroy so much infrastructure. We heard in evidence that as the rebels moved into free time, They were particularly targeting police stations and policemen and killing the police. That was very apparent because some of those government offices, also the Ministry of Defence, was deliberately targeted. So there was no need to destroy an infrastructure. Possibly the rebels saw it as emblems. They never did explain to us why they did it. They acknowledged they did it. Uh, So those immediate reactions are what I saw. 
On the other hand, as an outsider, Sierra Leone by the United Nations and the Commonwealth was what they called a hardship posting. So only single people were there. Families were not there. And, But it had shops and supermarkets and not much else, mind you, but it had food and coming in. That was different to Bougainville when I first went into Bougainville as a judge and I was the first judge to go into Bougainville. There was nothing. Yes. Nothing. So what would you say, just to wrap up, if you could capture the story of Sierra Leone and situate the Special Court of Sierra Leone within that story, because I think it is part of the story and the history of Sierra Leone of conflicts in West Africa. But if you could just share with us what you think is the legacy, the biggest legacy of the Special Court of Sierra Leone for its constituent community, for the victims that came, for the stories that you heard, for those that watched as convictions were handed down, for those that had family members, loved ones, heard the stories the conflict was infused with. What is the legacy of the tribunal? Dr. Brugger, I wasn't really expecting that question, but I'd like to preface it mm-hmm. by saying something about the national court system. Yes. When I was a student, a practicing lawyer, a judge at the beginning, I was always told and taught and acknowledged that the judiciary are the bulwark between the executive and the ordinary people. And the Sierra Leone courts and the Sierra Leone judge judiciary prior to the Civil War and even during it had failed their people. And that came out very clearly in the findings of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And it came out again in my own experience. Court cases were delayed, not for months, not for years, but for decades. I was the first judge to go in to the prison at Pademba Road, where there's supposed to be a judicial inspection once a month. The governor wasn't expecting a judicial inspection, but he was very polite, very cooperative. He said to his deputy, take the judge around. So I went around and I'd taken a senior magistrate with me and I said to the deputy, how long is it since you last had a judicial inspection? And he said, I've been in this prison for over 20 years and you're the first I've seen. I found people there without warrant, without charge, for years. Men on death row for 10 or 11 years, not waiting for a decision, but waiting for a decision from the judges on their appeal. So why did we have a special court? Now that you've asked me that question, I begin to see that it was some of the feelings, some, I'm very careful to say it was only one of the many causes identified by the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, and I stress it was only one of many, But it was one that maybe could have been different. So to ask 
with that background to answer your question, what did the Sierra Leone tribunal contribute? Well, first of all, it was the first court to sit in the place where the civil war was. And for me, that was very, very important. I was always a big believer in going back to where the crimes were committed. It also had a very efficient, very well-recognised outreach programme, which involved court personnel, interpreters, prosecutors, defence counsel, going out into the regions, out into the villages, out into upcountry, as it was called locally, to talk to people, to talk to leaders, to talk to schools, to talk to ordinary people that would turn up at a community hall and to explain why. It also was one of the courts, as I said, Kofi Annan, the Secretary General of the United Nations, when he agreed to the court being appointed, did talk about the egregious degrees of sexual violence and directed that there should be people that were qualified in sexual violence crime prosecution and hearings and in juvenile justice. Those appointees, I do, I do believe, helped our witnesses to cope with the procedure of recalling what happened to them and to start and coping with cross-examination. So we, that was also a first. We were also the first court to deal with child soldiers. And I take a little bit of personal pride, maybe I shouldn't, in the way we defined and looked at the evidence relating to one of the uh, parts of the crime, which is under the age of 15. Now that, you know yourself, records were destroyed, hospitals were burnt, many churches and places that might have kept a record of when a child was born and therefore its age, they weren't there. Yes, difficult. Difficult. So you had an evidentiary, a very important evidentiary element that had to be looked at in a in a fair and proper way for the defendants and for the witnesses. We dealt with that. We also dealt with the meaning of use. Uh, Some of those um, went back to, you know, I remembered pictures when I was here in Northern Ireland of youngsters out throwing Molokov cocktails at soldiers and tanks here in Belfast. Children get involved in war, but they're also used, and they were used extensively in West Africa as scouts, as as um, decoys, and particularly as food finding, as it was called. We were also the first court to deal with sexual slavery. We were also the first court to deal with forced marriages, a crime against humanity. And as you might, might know, it was my dissent that started that off. We were also the first court to deal with the um, as a sitting head of state as a defendant. Charles Taylor. Charles Taylor. And there was a decision made by the United Nations in um, as a result of, I believe, 
um, submissions made by the West African heads of state to have Charles Taylor's trial not in Sierra Leone, but somewhere away from West Africa. As I understood the information given, they were concerned it would destabilize the region. Mm. Personally, I did not feel that destabilization, but I'm not a politician. It was taken to the Hague. For me, and it wasn't funny, but it was sort of amusing at the time. The reaction of the Liberian newspapers was, they've taken Charles Taylor, our leader, away to the Hague so that he will die in prison. They saw Slobodan Milosevic's death as a head of state in the Hague. They thought this was a ruse on the part of um, authorities in foreign countries. So um, misapprehensions, wrong knowledge, fake news, they happen in places where the court trials are not there where people can see them. Yes. So people seeing those trials was an important element of reconciliation in Sierra Leone. Thank you, Judge Doherty, for those insightful, thoughtful and deeply reflective um, comments about conflict, about justice and about victims. You're very welcome, and I hope it does help people understand. You have been listening to LawPod, an informed take on current events brought to you by the law students and staff at Queen's University Belfast. This episode was produced by Richard Somerville and Rachel Colleen. Our theme music is by Colonel Chocolate and the Justice Triangle. We're funded by Queen's Law School and the Queen's Annual Fund. Thanks to Yasin Brunger and Justice Doherty for this episode. You can follow us on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram at QUB LawPod. You can also find us on iTunes and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Rachel Colleen. This was LawPod.